Welcome to the American Man from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. If you joined us during the 16-episode run of Criticism Limited, what follows will be something of a change of pace. This season, our ninth, will run for only four episodes, each featuring a standalone conversation, the episodes only loosely thematically linked by their shared engagement with corporate allegory and business melodrama. We'll be returning to the stereographic format of Criticism Limited at some point in 2024, but this format, slightly less labor-intensive, allows me to promote four new releases. In each episode, I'll be talking to an author and an additional interlocutor of their choosing. While our conversations will inevitably touch on their books, the primary critical object we've chosen is a recent work of popular culture usually television. In this episode, we'll be discussing the recent televisual adaptation of The Fall of the House of Usher with Philip Masiak, the author of Scream Time, which is part of the Avidly Read series published by NYU Press. Phil is a senior lecturer in English and American Culture Studies at Washington University in St. Louis, as well as TV critic for The New Republic. He was also until recently, the television section editor for Los Angeles Review of Books. During his prolific run in that position, he frequently collaborated with our other guest. Jane Hugh is currently completing a Humanities Society of Fellows postdoc at University of Southern California, where she will become an assistant professor of English next year. She is an assistant editor at N Plus One and recently joined the staff of the Book World section at the Washington Post. She has also written extensively about film and television, often as part of the Dear Television Collective. Edgar Allan Poe was one of only four antebellum American prose authors whose works and literary influence, Mark Twain asserted, managed to survive the 19th century. Twain dabbled in the genres with which Poe has been durably associated and occasionally alluded directly to his works. But mainly, Twain seemed to have studied Poe as an abject lesson, a victim of alcoholism, fame, and tortured genius the title Twain gave to an unpublished poem in which he worries about meeting a fate similar to Poe's, who died under mysterious and tragic circumstances at the age of 40. After his death, Poe's gothic horror and detective fiction spawned countless imitators, and Twain, immodestly, but also prophetically, clearly imagined his distinctive brand of burlesque humor and satirical travel writing might be worthy of similar flattery. This most recent adaptation of The Fall of the House of Usher, which premiered this fall, is actually, as Phil puts it in his review for The New Republic, a mashup, amalgamating dozens of Poe's tales and poems. It is also the final series written, directed, and produced for Netflix by Mike Flanagan, ending a tenure during which Flanagan made four feature films and five seasons of television for the platform in the span of just seven years. The same seven years, coincidentally, 
Phil was an editor at LA Review of Books. While we engage the argument of screen time only implicitly in the conversation which follows, I want to reiterate that this was one of my favorite media studies books of 2023, and one which may be of a special interest to parents, as it directly engages the panicked discourse about screen time, which has persisted, at least in the United States, since the 1990s. For more about this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash usher, or subscribe to my substack at theamericanvandal.substack.com. Here's Philip Masiak and Jane Hugh. I, I wanted to start with a, a kind of meta question, and Phil, your review of the fall of House of Usher invites this to some degree because you use it as an opportunity to think about the the corporate authorship identity of Netflix. And so I, I was wondering if both of you would like to talk at the start a little bit about like where we are in televisual culture. And I have some thoughts about how that might be reflected specifically in the show, The Fall of the House of Usher. But Phil identifies the way in which the sort of anthology miniseries has appeal to a kind of attention deficit culture, maybe, to borrow a little on the moral panic in your book. <laughs> but um, Borrow as much as you want. Yeah, <laughs> but that there seems to be some kind of shift happening in television culture that perhaps begins or is associated with the pandemic to sort of just put like one specific way of thinking about this is that Netflix during the pandemic introduced a playback speed feature so that you could watch things at 1.25 or 1.5 speed. And I can't help but read this as a direct response to the rise of TikTok and, and reels. In my media studies courses, one of the things that has happened in the last five years I always give students an assignment to do a media diary at the beginning of each term. And one of the things that I have seen is the consumption of television, by which I mean the streaming platforms, still relatively significant, has gone down gradually over the last five years and almost entirely has been replaced by TikTok consumption. And that TikTok was almost non-existent on those diaries five years ago. It's now the biggest social media platform amongst my students. And the hours spent on TikTok almost directly reflect the hours not spent with Netflix or HBO or other streaming platforms. And so I wanted to start by thinking about what, what is happening in televisual culture since the pandemic began. And that seems to be one of the questions that you're asking in screen time. And that might get us into this discussion of what's happening with a, an anthology series like Mike Flanagan's working on. I feel like I learned a lot about TV as an industry during the strike, during the WGA strike. And one of the things that I learned that I admit that I did not know before is that one of the things that has been happening in TV production over the past number of years, especially around streaming, is the phasing out of, maybe not phasing out, but the prioritizing against shows that 
had writers' rooms and worked alongside the production of the actual show in favor of streamers or networks wanting to essentially get a finished draft from a writer and then do production. And one of the reasons this came up in the WGA strike was that model essentially short circuits what had been and still is sometimes a kind of apprenticeship model for writers where they would write an episode, they would have their episode they'd write, and then they would produce that episode as it was being shot and put together and thus get the experience they needed to then become showrunners somewhere else or something like that. And that one of the things that has been happening is because it's more cost-effective, it's more efficient for these streamers to just say, write the thing, give it to us, and then we'll make it. And we don't have to pay for all of these producers and we don't have to pay for all these writers to stick around past however long it took to, to make the thing. And so one of the things that I think happens related to your question about corporate authorship is I think the easy thing to say is, yeah, the, the author is Netflix or the author is Hulu. But I think it's actually weirdly more complex because in some ways what Netflix wants is like an auteur model of writing, of the writing process, right? They don't want a collaborative effort. They don't want other people in the room. They want Mike Flanagan to write a bunch of, and you know, with the understanding that Mike Flanagan is a bad example here because he does bring in other writers and other people do collaborate with him, but somebody like Mike White, right? Mm -hmm. The White Lotus is perfect because Mike White writes a season, hands it in, and then they make it. And there's not a bunch of other people involved. There's not other writers that have to get experience. And if at some point they decide not to make it anymore, it doesn't matter because it was an anthology and they're not, it's not Deadwood getting canceled in the third season. It's not Friday Night Lights getting canceled in the middle of its, its story. They just keep making these individual up. So I think that there's also a relationship to like the way viewers watch TV. And I'm sure that plays into it to some extent, but it's hard for me, I think, hearing and reading all that I have read and heard over the past six, eight months about the sort of main concerns of the writer's strike to see this as maybe it's influencing the way people watch, maybe it's influencing what people want moving forward, but it's also something that is coming from streamers and networks that are trying in some ways to make television on the model of movies instead of mirroring like the way things were made in the broadcast era. The other thing I think I learned from the, the writer's strike is that these streamers and these production companies and these studios don't know what they're doing. <laughs> In a large part. And a lot of this is like accident, right? Is this cheaper? Is it easier for us to make an adaptation of something rather than nurture a new story or original story or something like that? And, and I think that some of this is greed and some of it is penny pinching and some of it is intentional shaping of the way television is made. And some of it is just people stepping on rakes, I think. So the anthology feels a little bit like a product of that, right? Somebody came up with this idea, but also... This is the idea that they came up with under these new constraints. Yeah, I just, sorry, to, I guess I didn't realize you were talking about playback speed change. You could watch mm -hmm. things at, how is that related to TikTok? This is, is a, maybe a pretty vulgar interpretation, it, but it is the idea that Netflix is trying to appeal to an audience that is consuming things more quickly, more rapidly, uh, has okay, less patience. And I think introducing the playback speed feature may be a pretty reductive way of doing that. But also, as, as Phil said, a lot of this is just throwing stuff against the wall, maybe an anticipating a kind of competitor 
that is not the competitors they were initially worried mm -hmm. about, right? Not Amazon and Apple and HBO and Disney, but rather a, a kind of new wave of competitors coming from the sort of social side, but creating stuff that is maybe more resemblant of television than we might have initially mm -hmm. assumed. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. That makes sense. Yeah, I was just clarifying that it wasn't about a stutter in the in the play or a, a looping or something like that. I, I yeah. In preparation for this, I reread the Rachel Syme New Yorker profile on Bella Bajaria, and I don't want to get ahead of the Mike Flanagan stuff, but the reason that he left or has left or is leaving for Amazon from Netflix seems related to some kind of regime change from Cindy Holland to Bajaria. But what I extrapolated from that piece that only tangentially touches on stuff that happened during the pandemic is that they are moving towards sort of what Phil was suggesting, more excerptable, like the anthology series has a beginning and an end in this way that seems related to questions around the pandemic and attention. And this might just be my personal sense, but I feel like the pandemic and Netflix with all of its many shows globally and nationally. I don't feel like I'm on the same, and it might just be because I'm not watching less TV as I age, but I, <laughs> I don't feel like I'm on the same like viewing timeline as other people. I think that despite the popularity of something like Tiger King, right, or Squid Game mm. during the pandemic that kind of crystallized simultaneous viewership and viewing community. I don't feel like I'm watching some of the same shows as my peers as they are being aired, maybe on HBO in kind of a rolling format. But at least as far as Netflix uh, is an exemplar of whatever is happening to TV viewing post 2020. Yeah, I feel like there seems to be some kind of relationship to that. And anyway, the other thing that I got from the New Yorker profile is also that it, it does seem like they are green lighting. I mean, it's sort of what the Daria is bragging about, it does seem like they're green lighting and just giving the okay on shows before they've seen like that, yeah. right? Like, so that sort of seems to be also along the lines of what Phil was talking about. Yeah, that, it, that if we have moved to a model where what used to be really the grand ambition of television was to produce shows that would run five, six, seven seasons. That was what networks were looking for. And, and I think even in the early stages, early years of the streaming wars, that was still the kind of hope. If we've moved now to actually a preference that it doesn't get to that phase because of the labor costs that increase with each succeeding year, right? Then it does create a set of formal and genre preferences, they're going to be decidedly different from maybe what we have associated with television, certainly in the, the cable and, and network era, and, and even in the early stages of Netflix original pro programming. It's interesting that we're here to talk about Mike Flanagan because one of the controversies, I know I obviously don't know enough about the sort of inner workings of this process, but Flanagan's left Netflix as Jane pointed out. And one of, I think one of the things that was a, was an issue is that he wanted Midnight Club, which was the installment of this now anthology, the last one, right? It was the one prior to House of Usher. 
um, was midnight playing, mass, right? No, no, the, there's midnight mass, which is okay. a, a standalone. And then the midnight club, which is an adaptation of a bunch of YA. Novels. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not up on Vanagon <laughs> corporate. Yeah. You're going to get there with me and Jane today. The midnight club was supposed to be a multi-season show and it was greenlit as one season, but it was pitched as multiple seasons. I think only two seasons. Like it was supposed to be a couple of seasons of story to tell. And Netflix just said no after the, the first season, like essentially transformed it into an anthology it, in a way that it was not intended to be, which I think is interesting in the context of what you've both been saying that not only are they looking for anthologies, they're also in some ways turning shows that were not anthologies into anthologies by way of cancellation or by way of just stopping production. That show does not work very well as a one season anthology. If you watch it, it, there's a cliffhanger. You can tell there's supposed to be a second season. And in fact, Mike Flanagan went on Tumblr, which I had to reboot my Tumblr account (laughs) in order to access. And essentially like Wikipedia style narrated what was going to happen in the second season, because I don't think he imagines they're going to get money to actually do it. Yeah, I'm sure you both saw that Netflix released all of this data last week, right? In addition to their like weekly top 10 and most popular lists, they're famously very secretive. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're going to be releasing the sort of what we watched engagement report twice a year. And mm-hmm. I just briefly skimmed it and they only released information between January to June 2023. But almost every Flanagan, obviously the show that we're here to talk about today isn't Mm-hmm. Can't be on that list. Yeah, but the Midnight Club is, as far as I can tell, like the most, it's, it's the highest. So they didn't cancel it because it wasn't being watched enough. Right. So it actually, right. in terms of viewership, it wasn't like critically acclaimed, but I was just surprised. No. For example, Hush, the film was the number on my Excel sheet was 4,737. 4, Midnight Club season one was 653. Everything else is in the, in the thousand. Anyway, I was not expecting that because from the outset, you would assume that they did not renew it because it didn't mm-hmm. do well. And as far as I can tell, I don't know anyone who watched it with me. I only watched it. I only watched it because I wanted to make sweeping generalizations about the Flanagan yeah. series in that piece about the House of Usher. Yeah. I needed ammunition. I'm going to jump off of that because it, it was something that intrigued me why this about face from netflix who has always been very guarded about their data introducing into the streaming world kind of pressure you know is is this just braggadocio which has certainly been something netflix has done at the past here's how many millions of hours of this particular program or this particular series that we want to say, oh, this is the the most watched Netflix original movie ever. They've done that kind of stuff in the past to gloat over their viewership. Is this a beefed up version of that? Or is this kind of a way of putting pressure on their competitors to share more data and to create something more like ratings, which would potentially benefit them as they are trying to do more advertising? If they could see comparisons, what do you think is the rationale for what seems like a really radical change of policy? Again, not to bring it back to the strike, but a a very large issue of that strike was the relative occult status of streaming uh, analytics and specifically the unavailability of those analytics to people who are making shows and trying to get them to launch and getting these vague senses of 
oh, it's doing great, or it's the most watched show ever without any sense of like markers to give that any particular meaning. And I would imagine that at minimum that sort of streamers learn from this process is that practice of being so secretive about numbers was possibly more trouble than it was worth in relation to negotiations with writers, negotiations with producers and things like that. So I would bet that this is it. It's not an exhaustive amount of data, as Jane said, very limited time-wise. And again, it's missing some of the markers of how do we compare this to anything else? Like, how do we know what this means in a sort of grand scheme? But even just forwarding the impression of being a little bit more forthcoming, I would suspect is part of a of sort of post-strike normalization of some degree of access to what exactly is happening at these streamers. Because prior to this, it was just this like scrim behind which all of the stuff happened for all we knew. Everybody in the world was watching these shows or six or seven people were watching these shows and it was impossible to tell. So my initial feeling is just, this is part of a sort of show of transparency, even if it's not actually all that transparent. Yeah. There's a lot more titles. So that's one thing you get Mm. data on things that you might, you probably don't even know exist. (laughs) A lot of these titles I do not recognize. (laughs) And um, as I was searching for the Flanagan uh, keywords. (laughs) Um, but with the one-off brags, the, the top 10 list, the estimated hours of viewing. So it does seem like it's been something that they've been planning to do for a while. And with the addition of advertising now, right, it does seem like there is also, it's a gesture towards greater transparency. So I'm sure that's, that has to be part of it as well as they, they are like, they're just the biggest streaming network as oh. Yeah. Yeah. That, and it. It would seem, at least they would think that it's to their advantage for this to become more normal across the industry. At least it will be initially. So let's, let's jump into, to fall of Usher specifically. And I have definitely some things I want to bring up, but I'd like to start by just getting your reactions to this series. I quite enjoyed it, but having read Phil's review, my impression is he felt quite differently which is good for the for the purpose of our conversation but yeah i wanted to start by getting both of your reactions to just this series and and i will admit from the start i ha- i don't have any baggage or expectation associated with mike Flanagan or the broader franchise so that might have been part of my advantage here is i was not expecting it to live up to the previous seasons, but yeah, how, how did you feel about this mini series unto itself? But you go first, Jane. What did you oh, think? okay. I was going to ask if you, if you had changed your mind. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew that I might be watching it because still had primed me to this conversation. But I think, as reflective of what I was saying about my viewing habit beforehand. I watched The Haunting of Hill House. I really loved it. I know that Phil and I both, I think, really liked it and I found it really remarkable. I had some block with Bly Manor, the second of the Hauntings trilogy, anthology trilogy, just because I'm such a Henry James head, I like Mm -hmm. couldn't bring myself to watch it even though I really wanted to. So anyway, so I watched this sort of very recently and then rewatched it in quick succession. And I think I'm... Maybe just because I love being a contrarian. <laughs> I think I liked it. But I, guess I was telling Phil this. I watched it and my husband was always in the room 
as I was ambiently watching and he's seen it in some form twice now. And two nights ago, he asked me when we were recording. And I thought it was because he was interested in my schedule or my life. But his next response after I said Tuesday was, okay, because I, I really like need to know when you're going to stop rewatching this show. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly didn't like it. Anyway, so just to, I can go on about the reasons I, I liked it and why I actually think Flanagan is a, a really great fit in some ways for adapting Poe. But again, I think maybe if I watched it the same time Phil did, got an anticlimactic exit for Flanagan from Netflix. I think like very mixed reviews. It was not yeah. beloved, um, not critically acclaimed. Anyways, it's possible yeah. that I would have felt exactly the same way that Phil did. I'll admit that I think I was probably disappointed by it in part because of Jane, what you were saying. I loved the Hill House show. I was able to watch Bly Manor because um, I don't have, I don't have the same affection for, for old Hank that you do. I know him very well. I just, we all hang out. Um, but I also, I had written for LARB a couple of years ago about Midnight Mass, which is the only one of Flanagan's series for Netflix now finished that isn't directly an adaptation of something. It's a, a mini series. You saw it, Jane, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a mini series. It's a close ended mini series about a Catholic priest on a, a remote fishing island. And it's got vampire stuff and Catholicism stuff, um, <laughs> which is, I feel like Catholicism stuff is, it's the like Netflix suggested category in which all the like Flanagan <laughs> shows appear for me. <laughs> strong female lead, Catholic stuff. <laughs> award-winning directors and and i loved it i thought it was just i think it's my favorite of the series as much as i love hill house and i had written about it trying to make sense of it essentially arguing for it as an adaptation too because i think it is in some sense an adaptation of aspects of the new testament it's very engaged directly in catholic mythology in a way that the other shows are figuratively engaged in it and it's also an adaptation of dracula in some sense it's essentially about a guy who thinks he's in an adaptation of the Bible only to later disastrously realize he's in an adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula accidentally. <laughs> and then all the things swap. And anyway, I loved it. And I'm really into even still the project that Mike Flanagan represented at Netflix, which was this prestige literary adaptation through the through the form of like pulpy genre horror shows. And I, it was just such a cool concept. And the idea that he was willing to just keep making <laughs> series based on classic works of horror literature was like, I, I give him a lot of credit for wanting to do that in the first place and also somehow selling that as a concept to Netflix. And so I think I came into this series knowing it was the last and knowing that it was like the Poe being almost the most obvious candidate for this kind of treatment of all of them after Shirley Jackson and after Henry James, just being really excited to see the landing. And again, I'm a staunch defender of unfaithful adaptations. I think unfaithful adaptations are great. I think that adaptation is an interpretive act. It's a critical act. And I like seeing a director who is engaged in interpreting the text, even if it goes against what happens in the story. And I think to some extent, that's why Hill House was so good is because it made these like baffling alterations to Hill House that in some ways betrayed the novel. And Jane and I wrote about this at the time, 
like betrayed Shirley Jackson in these very strange, like uncalled for ways. <laughs> but because of that, like those infidelities created this like electricity about the show because it was all of a sudden there was no guardrail to it. The source text no longer was leading the way. And so my main memory of watching that series is being surprised, like things happening that surprised me in some way or another. And I think that goes to it being, I think, the scariest of the series. It's very effectively scary, but also the reason why it's the kind of proof of concept. And I just, I wanted that surprise and I wanted that sort of thrill of infidelity. But watching this show, I was trying to think of an analogy while I was walking over here and, and I thought of. Have you ever seen one of those like pun competitions, like serious punsters, they like compete and the way the competitions work is that they essentially have a conversation, but they have to make a pun in every response. And it's both this virtuosic act to be able to come up with them. And also just this incredibly strained, tortured event. And that's how I felt about the approach to adaptation with the Poe, that it was just like he was struggling to make a Poe pun in every sentence. And I think a good ex example of this is the Telltale Heart appearing at the end of the Rue Morgue yeah. episode and just feeling like the maximalism of it felt very different from the kind of studied unfaithfulness of the other ones, which still, even as they were unfaithful remained reverent in the sense mm -hmm. that I'm reshaping this text. Whereas this felt like all of these sources are just like pop cultural detritus that I want to bring into these various mm -hmm. contexts. And I'm not like, I'm not over here defending Edgar Allan, the honor of Edgar Allan Poe. Like <laughs> you do whatever you want with Edgar Allan Poe. To some extent, like the Raven as a concept is pop culture detritus to some extent. I was disappointed. And I think it was because I just, it felt fundamentally different as a, as an adaptive act than the other stuff that I felt very strongly about. And that's on me. <laughs> I didn't bring that same expectation. And also, I don't have the same kind of passion for horror. And so the fact that it wasn't scary was actually something that was attractive to me. It, it's certainly gory. There's certainly recognizable aspects of the horror genre all throughout it, as you would expect. But the number of jump scares, the, the, the truly terrifying stuff was not there. And I think you're right, in part because he is telegraphing <laughs> right. what's going to happen in each individual episode. There is no tension about where each episode is headed or where the whole series is headed. After the second episode and being familiar with these stories, I, I tried to deny myself access to the titles yeah, so that maybe yeah. I wouldn't know, but even doing that, it becomes recognizable usually in the first scene, certainly in the first half of the episode, which story we're in and where it's headed. But I came to kind of like that because this is this kind of late capitalist allegory and it captures something about the kind of death drive of capitalism and the momentum that was always towards an inevitable gruesome, brutal, grotesque death brought about often by greed, by various forms of protection of the family fortune, right? That spoke to me without necessarily feeling the need to have the unexpected turn, the unexpected twist. 
Yeah, I had a question about, because I'm not a 19th century Americanist, and out of Shirley Jackson, Henry James, and Poe, I know the first two much better than the, the last one. And what Phil was saying, I think, is correct, that it just seems in spirit and qualitatively somehow the Poe anthology does feel like a different kind of adaptation approach or, or, or method. I convinced myself that somehow it worked nonetheless because this was appropriate to Poe. And I, I guess I'm curious of Matt or, or Phil, you guys found that because I think I really like this sort of anachronism of just like dropping in Poe poetry throughout this script. <laughs> and every time it comes, you're like, oh, this is how I often feel about Poe, partly because of the I don't know, the historical distance. I'm like, it, is this good? Like it rhymes. <laughs> I've memorized a lot of them, but mm -hmm. I felt like there was something cute or delightful yeah. about being like, this is actually the right mood of TV show for Poe. And it makes the sort of cringy Annabelle Lee refrain. Yeah. <laughs> you're in this you've, me you've memorized them by in the same way you've memorized like Mbop or like some yeah. sort of earworm pop, pop song. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's definitely that. Element. Yeah. As somebody who teaches Poe on a regular basis, I'm a 19th century Americanist by training and so have spent a lot of time in that uh, oeuvre. Uh, yeah. That part was actually like it could have been cringy. And I, I take Phil's point that we may have some patience for this kind of public domain prestige literary IP that the bulk of the audience doesn't have. But what actually surprised me maybe was there were many moments where there was like a phrase, a, a, a little bit of dialogue, a monologue that I was like, oh, that's, I really like that. I wonder what that's from. And then I went to find out what it was from. And it was just Mike Flanagan's writing. <laughs> 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 and so he did a really good job, I think, of capturing Poe's tone and certainly the tropes that are all over the place in Poe, the, you know, buried alive, reanimated corpses, insomnia, waking dream states, all, all the death and devil figures, like all the tropes. You don't really know which story he's taking it from because they're all over <laughs> Poe's corpus. But yeah, there was a way in which he inhabited Poe that I really appreciated. And part of that was the willingness to turn to the poetry. At times overdetermined, I hated when he, he spoke the whole Raven poem in the last episode. I found that <laughs> utterly unnecessary. But there were other moments where they were pulling from more obscure texts that I thought really worked and gave this kind of creepiness that the anachronism of the language added to the eeriness of the set. Yeah. Jane, as usual, has figured out a way to change my mind about this. I feel like I'm getting converted by all of this. I feel like I'm being like a Mike Flanagan, like completist or something. Thing at this point, but I was thinking, Jane, especially as you were talking about your sort of understanding of the show and it's like poeiness that the Jackson adaptation, the Hill House is a novel, right? Flanagan doesn't have to do this grabbing from other stories or other images. There aren't like references to other Shirley Jackson IP in the Hill House adaptation. The James one is very, I think, more in line with what he's doing here. And as much as 
they said it at the home from Turn of the Screw, but these like various Jamesian ghost stories occur and within and without the sort of framework. But it still carried the flavor of the Turn of the Screw adaptation. Even if we're changing things about it, even if we're adding these other James references, it's still the Turn of the Screw in the same way that Hill House, even though we're changing all these things, it's still Hill House. But thinking about this Poe adaptation as almost, I'm going to say something really gross here, almost like the Poe brand of gothic horror, of like American gothic, and understanding Poe's corpus in some sense to already exist as a kind of like Edgar Allan Poe presents style of authorial control over unrelated, but thematically like recognizable stories and moods and events and characters and like gruesome macabre fates and things like that. There's a reason why even high school kids who are not particularly invested in literature know what Edgar Allan Poe is, right? And I think stepping back to some extent from my initial viewing and my expectations, thinking about it as a show that is striving just to be like Edgar Allan Poe in some way opens it up a little bit more. One of the ways that it's like Edgar Allan Poe that I really appreciated is that in almost every Poe story, even though there is often some sort of haunting, curse, ghost, some sort of allusion to magic or the supernatural, there is also potentially a scientific, neurological, psychological, pharmaceutical explanation. And that was one of the things that the series seemed to hold on to. That's especially true of The Fall of the House of Ushers, that you can read it as a haunting, but you can also read it as the presence of bacteria. And letting a house fall apart is going to lead to all sorts of health problems for its inhabitants right mm -hmm. so yeah i liked that mm -hmm. they retained that in almost every episode although you had certainly these sort of mystical magical potential catholic interpretations <laughs> theological interpretations <laughs> right you also had the potential to read this as this is the price of reckless innovation in science technology and medicine I, yeah i really like the phil or you were saying uh, around the Poe po extended universe aspect of it, but also it seemed <laughs> um, connected to Matt, what you were saying about the allegorical affordances of the plot alongside the scientific innovation plot, also the AI plot, right? And in rewatching it, I think in episode two, Madeline, the younger Madeline, is talking about the possibilities of AI, right? You can, it can do predictive diagnoses in medicine and financialization too. But also one day a robot could write, she says, television or a film. And then mm -hmm. that kind of circles back to the end where you have the Lenore bot who's just saying nevermore, which is exactly <laughs> what happens in the poem, right? I, I love the idea that <laughs> Edgar Allan poems are like chat GPT, write the raven, <laughs> or indeed Mike Flanagan could write a pretty good approximation of yeah. because the genre is so embedded in our subconscious. I thought that was quite smart to have that sort of objectified in the siblings. Yeah. And it's almost like a redemptive AI reading to some extent, because the, I mentioned this in the piece, but I think the popularization of the prompt structure X in the style of Y that mm -hmm. we're encountering so much with Dolly and with ChatGPT, there's like an aspect of this show that feels like succession in the style of Edgar Allan Poe. And that isn't necessarily to, I meant it negatively in the context of the world view, 
but I think Jane's giving us <laughs> parentheses, not a compliment, because, um, but I think that there is a <laughs> derogatory. Yeah. I think there's a, there is a parentheses compliment way of saying it, which is that what chat GPT is doing is immersing itself in a corpus of writing and reproducing that style because of its deep literate immersion in it. And I think that one of the things that it's the project of this series is Mike Flanagan doing that, saying, what if I immerse myself in Edgar Allan Poe and try to write an Edgar Allan Poe show? And I think we see other filmmakers and television writers do that are la- that are not within the context of an adaptation. And so there is a little bit of, a, unsurprisingly, an uncanniness to it when, like the scene of viewing that you were describing Matt, where you hear a line and think, well, what Poe is that from? And it's actually just Mike Flanagan doing Poe, but there, I don't know. I'm now on record as having said, it didn't really work for me, but nevertheless, that's like the Mike Flanagan experience. It doesn't always work. Right. But there's something daring about being attentive to a source text in the way that he is. And this isn't about fidelity or infidelity. It's almost about super fidelity in some way, or like finding some essence that is like agnostic to whether Poe wrote a thing or whether Mike Flanagan wrote a thing. Am I able to capture this style of, in a way that is recognizable to people, right? That does exactly what it did to you. Phil, you're making me, just you talking right now, you're make, you're clarifying for me why I actually liked it because it's super generic-ness done under the hand of a recognizable auteur. It's it, because mm. Mike Flanagan, I think this is one of the reasons why it's such a loss for Netflix in some ways, because I feel like he is exemplary or typical of yeah. the gourmet hamburger, right? That, that they basically <laughs> as the Netflix brand, like he's all they could ever want. Yeah. And it seems like in this final farewell piece that's encoded somehow in it's not just a Poe mashup, right? That has like the opposite of uh, the philosophy of composition. There's disunity. It, it's not Haunting Hill House, right? It's the complete reanimation Frankenstein <laughs> version of all of Poe's <laughs> works. But it's also at this point, you're seeing Mike Flanagan do Mike Flanagan. The fact that he's always using the same actors right. in different roles. And then at one point, I only realized this on my rewatch when Lenore and her mother are like watching TV at home and they're going through Netflix, they're watching Netflix and they're watching horror films. Right. And so she asks her Uh mother, a movie or a TV next. And her mother says movie, but on the screen, you have a preview for Gerald's game, which is a Flanagan (laughs) film. So the gourmet hamburger is like eating a a mini gourmet hamburger. I don't know. There's just something (laughs) like getting the last word here. Anyway. Yeah, that that sort of over-determined genre-ness, yeah, I think is very present and it has to be quite well written and very well acted for that to work. And that was one of the things that stood out to me. Like you said, I think regardless, Poe has a tendency towards corniness, right? And a lot of these lines you could see being delivered in a way that could be nothing other than camp. And yet it succeeds, I think, in being taken seriously and feeling serious. And with a few exceptions, like I said, they him reciting the Raven poem. There's a, there's a few moments where we get that kind of cheesy, corny, but by and large, even when they're spouting out 
rhyming couplets, I was sold on the character doing that. <laughs> and, and I think that speaks to maybe why the gourmet hamburger works, right? Is it, it, if you have very good actors and a good writer, they can, it can work through the overdetermined, the fact that we know what's coming. We, we know the sprinklers are going to come on and melt the entire dancing population, but we nonetheless can, can enjoy the, the ride to get there. It's interesting to me to think about what Jane said about Mike Flanagan being all they could ever want. I think that's really true. I thought that too. And it's funny or like rueful or ironic or something that the Flanagan experiment at Netflix is ending essentially the year that we all just found out that the kind of streaming gold rush is ending. Because I think the way that Mike Flanagan is all they could ever want is that what he's done there is very much what I think the rhetoric around streaming was promising to viewers and creators, right? We're going to find talented people. And because we don't have time slots, because we don't have advertising, we're going to let them do whatever they want. And some of it's going to suck, but some of it's going to be transcendent or some of it's going to be a hit or some of it's going to be serious, lasting art. And we're just going to let them do it. And that's like an extension of the, the HBO, like the early aughts HBO model, where you know, they were doing a version of that, but within the constraints of premium cable, or they said they were doing a version of that within the constraints of premium cable. And it's, it really feels to me like in some ways, Mike Flanagan is one of the only examples I can think of someone for whom that actually worked and is true. Where if you think about the other big auteurs of Netflix or the big celebrity producers like Ryan Murphy or, or Shonda Rhimes, they've done good things, but they were also famous when they got to Netflix. It's like they paid a bunch of money to get Ryan Murphy there so he could just sit in a room and say, sexy serial killer or something <laughs> and, and make them a bunch of money, throw darts at a wall. And Mike Flanagan got to Netflix as basically nobody. He was like a working, liked and acclaimed horror filmmaker, but he didn't have massive hits. He certainly wasn't a proven television person. And he came and did exactly what streaming was supposed to allow to happen, which is take big swings do personal stuff, establish in the way that Jane has described a like Flanagan-ness that people didn't know, like there wasn't a Flanagan-ness culturally before he gets to Netflix. And then all of a sudden he creates himself as this Hitchcockian mood generator. And it's really interesting and funny and a bummer, not that this season was the last season of it, but that that experiment is over. And I bet a dollar that there's not going to be another one. That if that was ever a priority for production at Netflix, it certainly isn't anymore. And I can't imagine them giving somebody else like Mike Flanagan, as in relatively not well-known indie filmmaker or like up-and-coming filmmaker, that kind of a blank check for right. five seasons, plus all the movies he made. Yeah, just this is a small thing I I don't know if either, or maybe Matt, less you because you don't watch the other Flanagans, but in terms of your note about the good acting, I also feel like Flanagan has a real eye for new actors. Like he made Victoria mm -hmm. Pedretti's. Yeah. Um, right? And I think she's wonderful and very magnetic. She's in both Haunting of Hill House and Bly Manor. And then she gets cast yeah. in You, which is like one of the top rated Netflix serial thrillers. <laughs> Katie Parker, yeah. who plays Annabelle Lee in The Fall of the House of Usher, reminds me of her so much. He has a kind of virtuous 
innocent <laughs> woman type. That yeah. anyway, that was surprising to me, and I'm really going to miss that. But pre- you know, presumably he'll be able to replicate that in some form at Amazon yeah. as well. Yeah. He strikes me as somebody, and again, not having seen so much of the pr- the previous work, but just based upon w- what I've read and and heard from you and and watching this one series, he seems to be somebody who thrives working within constraints, genre constraints. I presume probably some financial constraints. Being told what kinds of metrics Netflix is is looking to appeal to demographics, so on and so forth. It, it feels like when you go to Amazon, you lose all of that, right? That that <laughs> Amazon and Apple are these. The non-streaming streaming platforms where they just throw gargantuan sums <laughs> at established producers and directors and sometimes let them hang themselves, <laughs> right? And, yeah. and he, that definitely seems like a danger with somebody who seems to thrive specifically with having some sort of guardrails around form and genre mm-hmm. that he can play with as opposed to just being left to do whatever he wants. Maybe he can build those for himself. Yeah. So a couple of things about the move to Amazon, one of which is, as far as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think he's developing any TV shows for them at the moment. I think it's movies that he's working on at the moment. So that might be the kind of artificial constraint is Mm -hmm. he's making feature films. But I also, I think it's interesting what you say about Amazon, because I think they're an interesting contrast to Netflix, both in terms of the sort of like, somewhat craven metrics-based decisions of cutting the Midnight Club because they didn't want it to be a multi-season show or something, and also the sort of accidental or vestigial efforts towards the freedom of creators, is that Amazon has its own very strange version of that too. They have these like bulbous, terrible, aspiring franchises right in the Lord of the Rings show or whatever that like famously people didn't f- even finish watching on, on yeah. mass and, and cost a zillion dollars. And then they're also just throwing, I'm sure, relatively small amounts of money, at, as you said, at like established writers and creators. So Barry Jenkins gets to make a masterpiece in Underground Railroad, and then he turns it into Amazon and they're like, what on earth is this? What are we supposed to do with this? And then they don't do anything with it, right? They dump it all in one day. They barely do any marketing for it. Nobody watches it, even though it's just sitting there. Like one day, the Criterion Collection will put it out or something, and we'll have a revisit. But they do that a lot. And I've had this conversation with people. There's got to be somebody over there who is just like very quietly giving sizable sums of money to really good and thoughtful art filmmakers, and then just forgetting to tell his or her bosses at Amazon. So like, I'm a Virgo came out this year from Boots Riley, which is genius. Mm -hmm. And undone the rotoscope animated thing from, from one of the creators of Bojack Horseman. They make these incredible pieces of art and then they just bury them because they didn't know they were making them or they, <laughs> they, they got something that was different from what they imagined. The, the gap between somehow these projects getting greenlit and paid for and then Amazon's like total ambivalence towards them once they exist is one of the big mysteries to me of the streaming landscape small acts too. the steve mcqueen Mm -hmm. anthology that 
totally fits with my experience of Amazon originals. The ones that I watch are almost always, I hear about them through the grapevine. Somebody says, why don't you try try this out? Never the stuff that they're promoing on their front page. It's, yeah, it's something that I had no idea existed, except that some friend randomly watched it and thought it was amazing. So there's one question I definitely wanted to get to. We've talked about two of the kind of er texts here, obviously Poe, and then also succession and maybe the broader immersion to genre of the kind of family business melodrama. Mm-hmm. But there's a third er text that, at least in what I have read, has not been part of the formal reception. And that is the Sackler family history, right? And there has been a lot of television made about this in the last few years, yeah. right? Almost every st- streaming network has taken a shot at this story, right? Hulu did Dope Sick and yeah. HBO did Crime of the Century. And there have been a couple of documentaries as well. And now Netflix twice in one year does <laughs> Painkiller, a kind of more of a historical drama version and then definitely the more allegorical house of usher and so i I think especially given phil's you established interest in the way that addiction and television have had these intersecting nomenclatures I, i was curious to talk about like why is why is television so drawn to this story and has it worked as television? It, it works for me, I will admit, with House of Usher. But but I was curious to know how, how you interpreted the, the drive to tell this story through television, a story that until recently just wasn't told, period. Yeah. Uh, and now seems to be all over the stream wars. You invoked me, so I'll... <laughs> you invited me into the house, I'll... I'll start, I guess. I will admit that this is a part of the show that I did not take seriously. And I think in part, we've covered the, the like attitude with which Flanagan treats the Poe material, which is very like playfully. It's very learned. Like you wouldn't be able to do what this show is if you didn't read a lot of it and internalize a lot of it. But it's also very just like blithe kind of the references, the call outs, the little, like the product that has a name from a thing. And I think to some extent that broader, like frivolity of the adaptation made it hard for me to take any of the things that I know it wanted me to take seriously. Mm. And so (laughs) over the course of this conversation, as is the case of almost all the conversations I have with Jane, I am obviously coming around to a slightly warmer view of the show. It's still, I think, a bridge too far for me to be invested in what it has to say about the Sacklers or the opioid crisis. I say this knowing that Mike Flanagan is someone who's very serious about narrative addiction and they make appearances on almost all the shows and Midnight Mass and Hill House especially have very thoughtful and and serious things to say about addiction and and about drug use and and substance abuse and the effect they have on families and, and communities. And so I don't doubt Mike Flanagan's seriousness about this. It did feel to me like, and I think this is probably because of the, what you mentioned, that this is a story that was not told for a while and all of a sudden has been told a million times, especially in this like streaming environment, that it almost felt less that the show was invested in thinking about 
the Sacklers and the opioid crisis than it was invested in thinking about TV shows that are invested in the Sacklers and the opioid crisis, right? That this was like a readily available plot structure to use here that is relevant to Flanagan's investments in the same way that Catholicism is. But it just, it felt light to me, which isn't to say that it's bad, but the show's investment in that stuff felt tertiary almost. And again, that's not a criticism necessarily, but I personally had a hard time thinking too hard about the insights that the show had about substance abuse or pharmaceutical corruption and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like the one, I guess that just to ask a question back, I saw, I think I saw, I was just looking up the various Sackler TV shows. I saw Dope Sick, but I haven't seen Painkiller and some of the others. Is House of Usher the one that most seriously takes the story from the perspective of the family? Like, I don't, act, of- I haven't seen. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I haven't seen all of them either, but I know that Painkiller does do a somewhat similar thing of let's follow the the long arc of this family from relatively middle class professional life to gargantuan magnet status. But I haven't seen the whole series, so I don't know if it has the same kind of investment in understanding them psychologically. Yeah. 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 As you're saying that, that part might be interesting. It does seem like from the very beginning, it's about the fall, right, of this illustrious <laughs> family. So that's baked in <laughs> to, like, we all know how it's going to end. And something that I did find interesting, just because I, I know that he's appeared on your podcast and he's been a, a mentor of both Phil and me, but Jet, I, I really like Jet Estes work on imperial cycles and things like succession and the fall of the house of usher really nicely allegorize that within the span of generational wealth but actually it's usually about the span the rise and fall of one father figure right so there's a kind of limited timeline both the rise and also the fall of the empire allegorized in in that Figures. I actually <laughs> love that. It, it's it, it makes literal this idea that the the trust fund inheritor like is inevitably doomed, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, we might as well just kill them off at the moment the father dies because right. there is no hope for the heirs of that fortune to do something good with. Yeah, and, that, and, then, yeah, and then if anything, yeah. the father Bruce Greenwood as Roderick never does this, but if anything, if they have a chance of futurity of the father kills himself off before they're killed off so the way i i thought something ingenious was the way that they i think they start with the youngest right they move closer and closer to killing but but, you know he's like the final boss the way the the sort of video game aspect of who gets cut off first yeah it's a version of succession too right (laughs) in some sense but i was interested in the happy moral the happy ending is that it gets inherited by the People who are mm-hmm. not of the family, right? The black widow, yeah. Yeah. But also the mother of Lenore, the only good usher <laughs> that isn't the wife, the only good usher in the bloodline. And then also the other young wife who's a heroin addict. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they donate it and they start start up. So I, I thought that was a kind of interesting way of imagining what futurity might look like after the fall of this empire. Just because back, you know, Estes book is thinking about how might we re-narrativize the the next 
phase after the decline of uh, force of a bad power. I did appreciate, and I, I agree with you. I found all all of that philanthrocapitalist narration interesting and, and additive in the final episode. But I did also appreciate that we get the devil figure narrating to Lenore all the good that she's going to do despite losing her life. But then the actual tally, and this is where the kind of necro-capitalist theory came in for me. The actual tally is, you know, oh, 10 years from now, there's going to be 3 million people saved by the work that your mother does because you saved her from your father. And then in the very next scene, we have the the hundreds of millions of bodies falling from the sky <laughs> for the tally of Roderick Usher, reminding us that whatever good this money does in the hands of people outside of the family, it is going to be overwhelmed by the, the horror of what is necessary to create the fortune in the first place. And so, yeah, I found that kind of tallying uh, a kind of literal comparison of the corpses to the billions, right? I found that very powerful. It worked for me in a way it clearly didn't, uh, you know, for Phil. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, my heart is hardened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's also just something that someone like Mike Flanagan can do because it, it has that level of literalness. Yeah. It's not camp or corniness per se, <clears throat> right? But I can't imagine them doing that on succession. I feel like a lot of the sort of escalating melodramatic monologues were about trying to come up with like bigger and bigger numbers. That itself could be an allegory for Netflix's yeah. plan, but also just the idea that they're not only trying to calculate what might actually be the death toll, but also literally visualizing that is just, I, yeah, I feel like you have to be like a very certain type of whatever uh, aesthetic you have, you have to have a certain yeah, auteur, auteur, yeah. yeah yeah to do that yeah. and also, it's also part of the way of thinking about like zeros and ones right because the body's falling look so mm -hmm. fake yeah too, at the same time right you're like okay, yeah I see it's a lot of dead people but also yeah these are not <laughs> yeah real bodies yeah. <laughs> yeah. Said. so the cgi i thought was really great too the, the bad yeah. cgi was great too. yeah 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 yeah, that, that Netflix wouldn't pay for it. And Netflix loves calculus, right? It works not just because of Flanagan. It also works because of Poe. Like Poe po loves mm. this, the bigger body count, the more drugs, like <laughs> that all fits with Poe <laughs> as well. So yeah, like I said, it worked for me at least, but I can understand there is a kind of moral calculus that is literal in the final episode that would not fly under the vast majority of narrative circumstances. Hmm. So Bruce Greenwood was not the original Roderick Usher actor, right? It was Franklin Jell um, who then got due to some sexual maybe yeah, misconduct on that. I didn't know yeah. that. That I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. So that know. is in and of itself interesting given what happens, right? The kind of the, the character that is Roderick. Yeah. But also, I just wanted to say that I thought Bruce Greenwood did. I know he's a Flanagan go-to actor, but yeah. I think he just did a really... I didn't like everyone, but I thought that the Zach Gilford, Bruce Greenwood casting 
and mm-hmm. juxtaposition for Roderick Usher really worked. And that there is like a, I don't know if this is true to Poe or not, but there's like a, there's like a sample of humanity in him throughout mm-hmm. just because yeah. he seems mm-hmm. to have some residual Annabelle Lee or yeah. um, like he, ha- he has some mm-hmm. kind of moral compass that obviously is just not there for the girl boss. Mandolin, yeah. Right. But I just thought, yeah, I thought that he also had the, I don't know if it's, it's like his eyes or something, like, or the voice, but just in terms of that, that casting choice, I thought that worked really well. Well, it's an interesting switch because you were talking about how generic this is. Again, parentheses compliment. And I think that one of the things that's interesting about Greenwood subbing in for Frank Langella is that Frank Langella to me at least, feels very much in keeping with the sort of 20th century vision of Poe adaptation that we associate with Vincent Price. Mm -hmm. He's not Vincent Price, but he's of the Vincent Price school of gravitas. And I think it would be a much different show if we had this quasi-icon of mid-century style Poe adaptation anchoring this show rather than somebody like Bruce Greenwood, who feels, I think you're right to say how appropriate he is, but he's also unusual in the context of what we would ordinarily think of as a sort of Poe actor, right? His, he's a much different type of, he does a much different style of melodrama mm-hmm. than the kind that we might associate with Edgar Allan Poe adaptations of the past. And so it's greater. The, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And somewhat more naturalistic, maybe, Mm -hmm. in a way that probably benefits all the things that you're both saying you liked so much about the show, right? That he unlocks something. Maybe I've talked about being surprised by Flanagan adaptations in the past. I think that maybe qualifies as one, right? Thinking about Bruce Greenwood and a character actor who we're familiar with from all sorts of different contexts, um, existing as this sort of particular antihero or villain or whatever we want to call him is surprising, I think. Whereas Langello isn't surprising, right? That's what yeah. you think of when you think of Paul. It's somebody like that. Yeah, and the, this is reminding me that one thing that I was interested in is the sort of bastard children, right? Or the so-called illegitimate children and the way that a kind of old school or maybe new school, old school whiteness gets hmm. uh, I dissipated, diluted, I don't know, in the various offspring who all like magically, not magically because they like learn about their father in their like late mm-hmm. teens or 20s, right? But they're, it's not just like a racially, it's not, they're not just like multiracial sort of family, yeah. but also like the accents are different. And I thought that worked really well with the way that indigenous or black African-American characters get represented in Poe. I don't know if it was quite like a direct adaptation or sublimation of the other, but anyway, it clearly mm-hmm. was yeah. was present in and very intentional in the way that they cast yeah. Yeah. people who do not look like they would. They don't even look multi ethnic. Sorry, I don't. You cannot mm-hmm. publish this, but it, 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 <laughs> it's like a fantastic, fantastical imagination. Yeah. Like yeah. These children, not all of the children look like they actually come from the bloodline, right? Uh, or they actually mm-hmm. look like Bruce Greenwood. Anyway, so I thought yeah. that was interesting yeah. uh, casting. Anyway, no. No, no, I, I agree. The the sort of the gender, race, and sex politics are, I think, genuinely mm. interesting. And we had the the casting of Dauphine, Poe's great detective as a queer black man, is also 
uh, clearly a careful choice and one that that adds something, I think, to the, the narrative. His reason for being attentive is different than the reason Poe's character is attentive. <laughs> right there's mm-hmm. there's something there that i thought that i thought was a really interesting ad- adaptive choice right the, the, what what he pays attention to and yet he still gets surprised at key moments in in the narrative seems to also be wrapped up in his caution about revealing portions of his identity particularly yeah. the existence of his husband and, and yeah so the, the flanagan does things clearly to both draw our attention to complicate and maybe distance from Poe's very problematic racial politics, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Lenore does seem to be, I think one of the reasons why it feels slightly different from the prior two haunting anthologies is that almost no one is likable. No main character feels likable in this version except for Lenore and Annabelle Lee. And that feels like the melodramatic. They're the only two characters, I think, who have like curly hair. There's a real um, (laughs) investment in kind of old school. Yeah. And she is the direct somehow daughter of this woman who died too early. Anyways, the sentimentality there, I think, is also, again, another Flanagan touch that I appreciated in this adaptation. The other kind of, I don't know if I want to call it stunt casting, but casting choice that really worked for me was Luke Skywalker as Arthur <laughs> Gordon Trim. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I didn't even realize until like after my first rewatch. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. There's some, yeah, that's obviously part of the auteur. Um, signature. I don't know if you had thoughts about that, Phil. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because you, you mentioned earlier, and, and you're right, that he works with a troupe of actors, mm-hmm. largely. So Carly Gudino and several of the kids are all people who've appeared in several of the adaptations so far, with Mark Hamill being like new to the cast to some extent. It's interesting because it's two kinds of casting, right? One is, here's our troupe. And so it's like the Wes Anderson style mm-hmm. rearranging of the featured players. And then also pretty classic stunt casting of, of Luke Skywalker in there with the gravelly voice, but like the, the new Mark Hamill of the voice of the Joker and the sort of legend of like dark side style roles. I, I liked it. I thought he was good. All the acting was great. I, I agree with both of you. It was a really, and it's honestly, it's a strength of all of the Flanagan shows is that the acting is pretty great. And he mm-hmm. seems to be very good with actors and good at, as Jane said, at finding actors mm-hmm. who finding or recontextualizing actors. I thought Hamish Linklater in Midnight Mass was a huge find to anchor a show, mm-hmm. just some character actor who's been around for a million years and you know his face, but, mm-hmm. and then also not quite stunt casting at this point, Henry Thomas being in all these shows and being the kid from E.T gives everything a little bit of a like nostalgic stranger things adjacent spielberg vibe to it that was philip maciak and jane hugh phil's book avidly reads screen time is available from nyu press for more about this episode please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash usher or subscribe to my substack at the American Before I go, I just want to note 
This episode is posting on December 22nd, which is the 150th anniversary of the publication of The Gilded Age, the best-selling novel by Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner, which would come to name the era between the American Civil War and the turn of the century. It's a very good and very funny book. CMTS and the American Vandal will be dedicating much programming to it in this coming year. So, you know, if you want to read some searingly cynical political satire, Twain, occasionally modulated by liberal sentimentality, Warner, over your holiday break, I've got a novel for you. Next time, I'll be joined by Dan Sinekin and Joanna Winant to discuss Dan's recent book, Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry in American Literature, as well as their forthcoming collection on close reading, and some trashy romance novels by Danielle Steele. Until then, I'm Matt Siebel. Thanks for listening.
Thank you.